I'm David Kern. I'm Heidi White. I'm Karen Swallow Pryor. And you are listening to Close Reads, a podcast for the incurable reader on which we are discussing, in which, on which we are discussing Charlotte Bronte's Jane Eyre. You discuss something on a podcast, right? Yeah. On which. It's on which. During which? During which. That works. We are discussing Charlotte Bronte's Jane Eyre. And we are going to discuss chapters, I guess, 25 through 27. We said 25 through 28 on the original schedule, but um, for the sake of time... We're just going to focus on 25, 26, and 27. Heidi, are you prepared to tell us what happened in these three chapters? I'm not trusted. Okay, anymore. so... No, it, no, well, no, no we're, we're, we're alternating. We're alternating. <laughs> this is the part. This is what we've all been waiting for. Jane is preparing for her marriage. She's getting married the next day, uh, but she had a bad experience so she has this like sense of foreboding and she goes out into the storm to meet rochester uh and when he finally comes home after doing business on his estates far away she tells him about how an intruder has come into her room and destroyed her wedding veil and she has this terrible sense of foreboding and he dismisses this and then the next day they go to the church to get married and when the priest says the fateful words, if anyone here knows any impediment to this marriage, then dun, 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 somebody actually does have an impediment to the marriage. It's for real. And the impediment is that Rochester is indeed already married. And he says, okay, well, that's true, but I'll explain it. My wife was like this crazy person. And I was like essentially forced into marrying her. I had no idea what she was. And now she lives in the attic, but sometimes she breaks free of grace pool who likes gin and and then wanders about the house wreaking havoc and setting things on fire and destroying wedding veils and and then jane has to decide what to do and rochester begs her to just ignore the marriage it doesn't really mean anything it's just the law of man i really love you and i should never have done it and she's she loves Rochester so much, but she cannot, she cannot violate her conscience and her virtue by living with a man. And so she, she won't do it. And that is what we read. And then she ran off. Yeah. She also runs away. She ends up on the road again, on the road again. Yeah. On the road. <laughs> That's right. A so, vagabond. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Where in the world should we start on this? I have a couple of questions that I think are interesting, but let's start at the end. Um, I've got questions about Rochester's case to Jane. Um, so does everybody who's ever read this book. And we need to talk about that. Um, well, would you like to start there? No, we, I want to start wherever you want to start. Okay, you so I was going to say let's start at the end of the section where she leaves, because where she has finally made her decision and she and she leaves. And it's got to be, it's at least worth discussing, I don't know how to put it, whether she made the right choice, how you think about the choice that she made, whether... Well, I don't want to say whether you would have made the same choice because a lot of other things would have to happen in your life to put you in that position. But let's talk about Jane's decision because she, she, you know, the, we've talked about this duty and desire idea. And there's a part at the beginning of 27, I want to say, she talks about how conscience turned tyrant held passion by the throat. And that brought to mind for me the, the duty desire concept that we've been discussing. She believes she has a duty to leave him. So she does that. She doesn't stick with her desires. So is there, do either of you have any, would you make a case that she should have stayed? Like, do you think you can make that case or is it just cut and dry? Jane did the right thing and she left. Well, I have a story that I, 
usually tell when I'm teaching this novel. Because when I studied this novel in my PhD program, Mm -hmm. it was like, I guess, the English novel class or whatever. I don't know. And um, it was a pretty, you know, for a graduate seminar, it was a pretty large class, maybe 15 or 20 students in it. And the professor asked at the beginning of the class when we were discussing this, um, he asked the whole class if it would be wrong for a person who's, and he used the example of like dementia or something for a person whose spouse was an invalid to live with someone, you know, to, to take up with someone else. And, and I, and I think one other student in the class um, that I'm not sure about, but it was either just me or this one other person raised the hand to say it was wrong. And he, the professor, you know, this is, you know, I was at a state university, not very friendly toward Christianity. And the professor asked the question, I raised my hand. I think this other guy raised his hand and he just looked around and he said, interesting. And that was it. (laughs) Um, And, but it is, so it is a relevant, I mean, obviously the situation of having, you know, a mad woman in the attic is bizarre and gothic and all those things. Mm-hmm. But how many people today are in some sort of situation where they are already <laughs> married and have a lot of compelling and, you know, heart pulling reasons to take up with someone as a companion? Mm-hmm. That's not unusual at all. Right. So that's what, you know, what Rochester and Jane were faced with. Well, and even under even under the Christian Christian ethic, which we have largely lost in modernity, right? I mean, you can't make a case in modernity for Jane's decision. You can't in the public right, square today. Right. You couldn't even find probably one person in a graduate class at a state university would raise their hand, or even if they might maybe had a thought in their head, it would be almost immoral, right? right? Like mm-hmm. to to say that Jane did the right thing. This is a novel that is largely deconstructed in the average academy right now. But even under a Christian ethic, you can he makes a pretty solid and compelling kind of sentimental case to Jane, which is if he, I truly love you and if you stay with me, then I could be saved because I will have mm. somebody to love and that will be my salvation. And if you abandon me, I will be left all alone for the rest of my life with nobody to love and I will sink into dissipation and despair. You already know I'm capable of that. Jane, you're my last hope for goodness. If you just let go of this like law of man, truly God brought us together mm-hmm. so that you can save me. That is his argument. And it's pretty compelling to her because she wants to help him. She loves him. She mm-hmm. she wants she wants to stay. And he makes missionary dating. Exactly. He (laughs) makes probably the best possible case to her to try to get her to stay. It convinced me the first time. I was like, don't leave, don't leave, don't leave. (laughs) I was wrong. She did the right thing. But the first time I read it, I just wanted her to stay with him because I was like, what will happen to him if she leaves? And she gives him the best possible answer to that. But Karen, when you when you first read this, did you want her to leave or stay? Do you recall? Um, I just recall being heartbroken. Um, yeah. I don't I, I don't think that I necessarily wanted to, but it was just, it's just it really is heartbreaking for everyone mm. involved. Mm. Yeah, there's that moment where she stops outside his door on her way out. Doesn't she like put her hand on it on the the knob of it, almost turn yeah. it, and then says she glides on 
almost ghostly. Heidi, you just said something that was sparked a question. You said so the la- the end of what you just said. Say that again. Do you recall what you said? Um, no. <laughs> I think I said I wanted her to stay the first time because he makes this. She loves him, and he makes this case to her that she could save him if right if she stays. So there's and, the go ahead. And she, he also claims that if she leaves. She is damning him to dissipation and despair. Like, it, like his fate is in her hands. You can stay and save me or you can leave and damn me is his case to her. Do you think he actually thinks that or he's being overly emotional and manipulative? It's probably a little bit of both, right? Gaslighters and narcissists always believe their own, their own <laughs> BS for a while. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. So- <laughs> But I do think that he, I I think that he does believe it. And I think that um, Mm -hmm. at least Jane believes he believes it. And that's what makes it so heartbreaking. Yeah. So is his, his case for himself, for her to say, is at least somewhat compelling to her? Is it, do you think, so she, you don't think she sees him as trying to be manipulative? The way we might, I mean, we use the term gaslighting now. She wouldn't, obviously. I mean, I think because part of the heartbreaking part is that she loves him too. She doesn't just want to stay to say, I mean, she, I mean, and and if we can take the time now, because these, these are some of the most important passages to look at, is when, I mean, he makes the appeal for his own salvation, but then he says in chapter 27, this is, um, I mean, it's basically 519 to 521, which I think mm-hmm. are just some of the most important passages. And the, and the last part of it in the middle of 521 is when he, you know, he he basically says, um, oh, no, this is this is her heart say, speaking to her who in the you know, who in the world cares for you or who will be injured by what you do. She's she's trying, you know, her part of her is rationalizing with her, with herself about staying. Yeah. Um, conscience intrusion turned traitors yeah, yeah, yeah. against oh, her. Right. She says. Yes. That's, and, um, you know, and this is where this is, this is, well, and this is one of the other parts about this, this whole book and, and this section is it's not like a snap decision. She, you know, it's a long prolonged discussion with him and with herself. And then it finally is a dream that she has that just tells her, you know, of her mother telling her to flee temptation. And that's just kind of what makes her her go. But um, now I forgot where I was going with that. But this passage where she says on page 521, and I just it needs to be read when she says, who in the world cares for you or who will be injured by what you do? Still indomitable was the reply. I care for myself. The more solitary, the more friendless, the more un- unsustained I am, the more I will respect myself. I will keep the law given by God, sanctioned by man. I will hold to the principles received by me when I was sane and not mad as I am now. Laws and principles are not for the times when there is no temptation. They are for such moments as this when body and soul rise in mutiny against their rigor. Um, that's just, this is, this is the key passage in the whole novel. <laughs> this is the, the thesis, I think. Mm. Go I on. I totally agree. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, 
How do you jump in at any time? You say you agree. Yeah. So. Oh, it's so true. Stringent are they, inviolate they shall be. If at my individual convenience I might break them, what would be their worth? They have a worth, as I've always believed. And if I cannot believe it now, it is because I am insane, quite insane, with my veins running fire and my heart beating faster than I can count its throbs. Preconceived opinions, foregone determinations are all I have at this hour to stand by. There I plant my foot. So you say it's the thesis of the whole novel. Why is it the thesis? I mean, I feel like that's worth... You can give a little mini uh, professor lecture if you want. Yeah, um, because because th- this is why I call this novel like the most Christian novel you might ever read. Agreed. Because this is this is Jane. Yeah, she is being a complete human being with passions and temptations and desires and loneliness and a need to be loved. All of those things that make us so you know make us the most human, and she is being asked to give that up solely because of laws and principles that she believes in um they are in conflict and i mean it's just so it's so it makes so much sense but how many of us stop and think that like oh of course this is you know these laws are for when i'm not wanting to follow them that's exactly that's the whole point of laws and principles and beliefs and this novel Right. Well, and this is what I, I really love about this is we've been talking over the over the course of this entire novel about Jane as self, right? This is the novel about the development of the self. And I agree with that completely. And what I love about Bronte that's completely missing from modern novels, as far as I can tell, is that she connects the idea of virtue with the acquiring of selfhood. That it when Jane actually clings to her principles in her hour of darkest temptation and when she walks away from the man that she loves for the sake of these principles even though she does believe indeed that she is abandoning him to dissipation and despair and she goes out alone and friendless and without any resources into the world it's an enormous risk and she almost loses not only everything she loves but her very life and in doing that that's when she becomes her true self And I think that's true. I think that's what Christ tells us. I think that's the pilgrimage of the Christian life is to become fully human by abandoning, right? Denying yourself, taking up your cross and following me. And to Karen's point, that is Jane's journey. That, That is how she becomes truly herself. And the opposite seems to be true in modern, in modernity. And in writing about modernity, the stories of modernity seem to be in order to become the self, the true self, we have to abandon religion, abandon God, abandon virtue, leave all that behind in order to become yourself with a capital S. But that's not, not what Bronte is saying. She's saying Jane's selfhood is found in her virtue. And I love that. I think that's what makes this not only an incredible novel in terms of the skill of its writer and all the things we've been talking about, but it's deep truth, like with a capital T. I just absolutely love this moment. I've never made it through this moment without not just crying, but like I was in the plane reading it a couple weeks ago for the 967th time, like wiping tears off my face in public while I was reading this part. I knew it was going to happen. It's the same every time. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and I also want to point out, since we're on these couple pages that uh, on the previous page, 520, that this belief system that Jane has, which is 
capital T truth, um, also teaches her and shows her that she's not um, abandoning Rochester Mm -hmm. to damnation, as he says, but when he said when he keeps trying to get her to agree to stay with him and he says what shall i do jane where turn for a companion and for some hope she says do as i do trust in god and yourself believe in heaven hope to meet again there then you will not yield no then you condemn me to live wretched and to die a cure accursed his voice rose i advise you to live sinless and i wish you to die tranquil this is what she wants for she wants the best for him as well. Um, and she's refuting his narrative that, you know, that he's going to, you know, be live wretched and, and die a curse. She's saying no, that is the opposite if, she, if they don't do this. Right. Well, and to your point, um, he, she says the same thing on page 520, Mr. Rutt, then you, he says, then you snatch love and innocence from me. You fling me back on lust for a passion, vice for an occupation. Her reply, Mr. Rochester, I no more assign this fate to you than I grasp at it for myself. We were born to strive and endure. You as well as I do so. Mm. And then on the next page, after that amazing speech, that, our internal interior speech that you read, Karen, she, she says this in the assertion of self, right? I still possessed my soul and with it the certitude of ultimate or the certainty of ultimate safety. This is her realization of self. And we talked last time about his declaration of love and uh, their moment in the garden together. And that's an important moment for her, but it's nothing compared to this, right? Like this is the, this is the true assertion of self for Jane. Yes, this is um, I do. I also wrote about Jane Eyre in um, my little well-known uh, little. Sorry, not well-known book, um, booked literature in the soul of me, kind of a literary memoir. And um, and I, I talk about this passage and I talk about the difference between self-esteem and self-possession. Mm-hmm. You know, the Bible talks about possessing your your own soul. Um and Jane achieves self-possession, which is all this talk about the self that we see in Bronte is that kind of, it, it's the biblical kind of possessing your own soul and, and, and you know, determining its mm. destiny in romantic terms, but because determining it through um, the will of God. Mm. What, that moment to me is, is, goes from really good to sort of transcendent after Mm. what Heidi read though, because where she says the soul fortunately has an interpreter, often an unconscious, but still a truthful interpreter in the eye. My eyes rose to his. And so Bronte gives us like a physical expression of her self ownership. You know, she controls her eyes and she, she looks directly into his. And that's where I think Bronte is so great. Like, she gives us the philosophy, the, the ideas, the inner life, but then that character then expresses that inner life in a way which is almost confrontational, but yet caring at the same time. And what you, one of the things that's, I don't know if it's exactly ironic, but it feels ironic to me, is that in his speech to her, what he basically tells her is that he loves her for the reasons mm-hmm. that she relies on to leave him. Yes. Like she's mm. different than all the other people that he has been around. And it's that difference that makes her, the thing that makes her different from all those mistresses and other women 
is that she wouldn't be his mistress. And it's like, he doesn't, I mean, he, he, maybe mm-hmm. he does recognize that. Maybe he's not self-aware. Maybe he is, or maybe he isn't self-aware enough to realize that. But his passions overcome that self-awareness. And in a way, I wonder if his expression of that, on the, on the one hand, as Heidi said, it is the best case he could make to keep her around. And yet on the other hand, it's maybe the worst case he could mm. make because <laughs> he appeals to her better self but then that better self, he has reminded her that she has that better self. <laughs> That's good. And then she she relies on it. It's interesting to me that he doesn't say, at least he doesn't say very much, without me, you're alone on a moor. <laughs> you know? <laughs> he, so the thing that he loves about her, like there's a, there's actually like a, um, he, he, that he loves her virtue and appeals to her virtue is almost a virtuous thing in him, ironically. Yes. But it's the thing that keeps them from being together because her virtue is so strong. It's like the the redeeming thing about him is he sees this self in her and loves that, loves her for it. But it he himself is such a messed up wacko <laughs> that he mm-hmm. that it that he's not well well he has built himself a, a life that is so messed up that he can't escape it. Um I think that's so uh, brilliant, so I find, David, I, what you're saying. Keep going. Well, I was just going to say, I I love the way Bronte presents his speech first. And in that speech reminds us, he's reminding, Mm -hmm. he's expressing to her, he's making his case to her. But from a storytelling perspective, his words remind us who she is. Mm -hmm. So we're then, once Mm -hmm. we go to her and we get inside her head, Mm -hmm. the choices that she makes feel right and feel, feel true. They, and you almost are rooting for her to make that choice. So, you know, it's, it is them going back and forth. There's the practical part of him pleading. But in terms of preparing us as an audience to be inside of her soul, basically, is so, so great by Bronte. And, so, and, and like, I think that's kind of a, it's a um, underappreciated part of what's happening here, I think, is the way Bronte as a storyteller is just preparing us as readers mm-hmm. to experience the, deci- the 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 pathos and the complication of the choice that she's going to have to make. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, okay, now I'm done. I think that's true. <laughs> no, that's so good. Well, and I think you're bringing up such a good point, which is Rochester's soul is at stake here too, right? It is not just Jane who, if right. she stays, she abandons herself to she she would be compromising, she would lose her virtue, she would become just another mistress of Rochester and whether or not she holds his love for the rest of her life, even even if she did, would it really be a real love? That's what that's the conclusion that she comes to. And and so her soul is at stake here, but so is his. And he truly believes that Jane will save him, but he's still externalizing any sense of virtue onto an object, right? You go ahead, I marry you and then or live with you, and then you can be virtuous and I can still be a wreck, right? And he says over and over again, I'm a dissipated, dissolute, depraved man. And as Oprah says, the wise Oprah Winfrey, when people tell you who they are, believe them. (laughs) And so we are now at the point that's like, yeah, she does love this man, but he, he, he must, he must learn to repent. He must own, he must become a virtuous man on his own. And so now and separating 
there's, he makes the case that she only can save him. And she kind of believes that, but then she ultimately rejects that, but she still feels yeah. an appeal in her heart towards that. But to your point, David, he is appealing to her better self because he thinks if he kind of takes her to himself, then she can be that virtuous person. And he has to learn that on his own. And well, so they the, are the tree, right? They are the, the, the tree that's riven in half and their, their roots are connected, but they're two different storm damaged people. The, the thing that I love about this is that he's not all the way wrong because she could be for lack of, let's just oversimplify it and say an, a good influence on him, right? She could play a, if you want a salvific role or whatever you, however you want to put it, because that's what happens when you're married to somebody. <laughs> um, hopefully, um, even if well, even except if that they they won't be they won't be married, right? Well, I mean, and, and this that's is true. That's right. true. And this is, I mean, she would be a good influence right. on him. But this is his. In, what I'm but, saying is his instinct that she right. is, could be a right. good influence on him right. is right. not wrong. Yeah, and and this kind of moral compromise without getting you know too you know, whatever. But this is the kind of thing that we see all the time is people rationalizing, right. you know, making moral compromise because of the, you know, because of pragmatism, because of the results. Yeah. Um, so that's another thing that this, this novel is just so timeless and so relevant in so mm. many ways, because we're all facing these temptations all the time and, mm. and it is complicated or, or we can make it pretty complicated. And that was Maya right. Angelou, by the way, I think, who said that, not Oprah. But I, I heard it on I could Oprah. Be wrong. It probably is Maya oh, okay. Angelou. Well, Oprah, she, but well, Oprah, pro, yeah, probably she may have been it. channeling. Yep. My, <laughs> yeah. I don't want to admit that I watched are you, Oprah. Are we accusing Oprah of Being plagiarizing? No, or? It could have I, been Oprah. Must I, have been are you, yeah, Karen, didn't you open a can of plagiarism worms on Twitter? I'm recently? always opening a can of plagiarism worms on Twitter. Some kind of worms. <laughs> yes, some kind of worm. Plagiarism is one of my favorite worms to, <laughs> now, to I'm, combat. I'm glad you clarified that because I am sure it is true. I'm just saying I saw it on Oprah, which I have to admit then that I did watch Oprah. It was a really long time ago, but that's well, You could have seen a me. YouTube clip or somebody could have told you or something. That's what happened. Um, since we're on these pages, another thing I have to point out, and I think I bring this up in the questions, but I just, again, this is this is Bronte's art, um, but just great storytelling uh, is on page 519, since we're kind of going backwards, mm -hmm. is where we have basically like the anti-marriage vows at the bottom of the page when... She says, Mr. Rochester, I will not be yours. Mm -hmm. Another long silence. Jane recommends he with a gentleness that broke me down with grief and turned me stone cold with ominous terror. For this still voice was the pant of a lion rising. Jane, do you mean to go one way in the world and to let me go another? I do. Jane, bending towards and embracing me. Do you mean it now? I do. And now, softly kissing my forehead and cheek, I do, extricating myself from restraint rapidly and completely. I mean, she's saying, I do, the marriage vows, but she's saying them by declaring she's not going to give in to this great temptation. Very powerful. She got to say, I do, but so heartbreaking. And... He even asks again, do you mean it? Do you mean it? There's almost I know, a, I mean... Mm. It, <laughs> is, am I think reading too much into it, you think, to to 
to be reminded of um, Peter? Uh, three times. So, yeah. yeah. Do you, are you sure? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's interesting that right before that, on the on 518, in the middle there, the middle paragraph, it says, you see now how the case stands, do you not? He continued. One of the things that it seems to be going back and forth with is, I mean, that, that case thing sounds like a very legal you know, this is a this is this is a courtroom. It's a legal case, and then the some of the stuff with the marriage is. There's been this discussion of it's uh, you know, it's she says it was ordained by God, sanctioned by man. He says it's just a human human thing, and then he calls it a a case. How do you approach a theme like that, Karen, when you are teaching or reading this book with somebody where there's this clear, you know, this motif there? Do you just point it out, and then I mean, this is kind of a you know, meta teaching question. Do you just point that out to your students and say, look, here's the, you know, he calls it this, she calls it this. There's obviously this dilemma here and it's kind of got a courtroom vibe. And then she says, she obviously makes this dichotomy. Do you just point that out and then explain it? Or how, how do you go about approaching something like that? Well, if it's something that's like that, like a motif, and we see sort of language being used, mm-hmm. you know, in a in a way that that creates that motif, then usually I will um, point it out, and then you know I will often ask, or they will volunteer, like other places where they've seen that. We'll kind of look for the way yeah. the text um, creates this kind of motif. That's not one that I'd really noted before, but that's a perfect example of one where once you see it, you're like, oh, okay. I mean, because there is a lot of invocation here, um, even in this section and throughout about reason, right? Like yeah. there, there are things that are just reasonable and rational, mm-hmm. but then there's the emotional and passionate, and they are often in competition with one another. Um, but for, you know, Jane, is the one who kind of figures out how to how to balance them well because of her Christian faith, which really should and is equipped to balance those things. Mm. So, yeah, I, I mean, I, th- I think that, like I said, once you see something like that, then it's just fun to, to see how other places in the text support it. Mm. Speaking of recurring imagery, motifs, things like that, Karen, you point out in question 32 and your questions at the end of the volume that... Um, there are a couple of recur, you know, what your question is what recurring imagery and major themes are reflected in this exchange Jane has with Rochester. And it's where he says, Jane, be still don't struggle. Like, so like a wild frantic bird. And then she says, I'm no bird. I know netted stares me. I'm a free human being with an independent will. We've talked a lot about her assertion of self uh, over the last two episodes, but the, the animal motif, you know, occurred to me, kind of jumped out at me when reading that question there. And then the passage you just read she calls him, she says, this still voice was the pant of a lion rising. Mm. What do you guys do with the animal imagery uh, throughout this section? It's particularly the way she describes him. Because there's a, you know, he, see, he seems a little dangerous here. Mm-hmm. Um, but she feels very confident in her ability to control him, it seems like. So do you read him as as dangerous as the animal imagery would suggest? Because when you talk about a lion who is panting, even if that lion is tired or hot, <laughs> a lion is still a dangerous beast, right? And so you can't help but say the illusion is is certainly fraught with, you know, images of violence and things like that. So, so how do you, how do you read that? Karen, what about you? No, I, I mean, I, I think this is again, part of Bronte's amazing artistry because she does use imagery like that so effectively and 
a couple of pages later, and I had this mark to talk about anyway. Well, actually, we were on this page, um, 522, where we talked about her possessing her soul. But in the next paragraph, the second half of that page, that's right, right after where the, you know, she meets his eye, never said he as he ground his teeth, never, never was anything at once so frail and so indomitable. We get that, you know, frail bird again. A mere reed she feels in my hand and he shook me with the force of his hold. I could bend her with my finger and thumb and what good would it do if I bent, if I uptore, if I crushed her? He, there is a sort of latent violence in him mm -hmm. and this is what you know some of my students today find troubling and and we probably should find troubling but then we have to kind of weigh it against um the times and and not just the the reality of the times but even just kind of the literary tropes and yeah. motifs that te get tend to be Reminds, I mean, it yeah. sounds like zeus <laughs> Yeah, yeah. And 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 just, you know, and just the stereotypical man who is, you know, supposed to be more like a lion and then the woman is supposed to be frail and like a reed. I mean, so it the book does include those kinds of tropes because they were expected then. Mm. Um so that's that's what makes it so rich because it's true and yet it should maybe cause us to look at it twice. He's he's there's violence kind of the threat of violence there in that passage. Yeah, I mean it's it's, I always compare this, I do not know if this was intended at all, but I, I all, whenever I read this, I always think of Wuthering Heights, and there's a scene in Wuthering Heights, when, which is written by Emily Bronte, Charlotte's sister, uh, and in which Heathcliff comes to Kathy in a room and they use almost like very similar language to describe the encounter between the man and the woman. And in the scene, Kathy in Wuthering Heights, Kathy is pregnant. And then later that day, she, something terrible happens to her as a result of this embrace. There's very strong, um, forcing of intimacy vibe in both of the in both of these scenes um, but it's not something that they could say out loud right just clearly this is i think that's what jane is afraid of here he's afraid that he's going to force she's afraid he's going to force himself upon her and take her virtue and take her body and that and that I think it's very clear that that's what his that's what's in his mind and that's what she is afraid of and that then she responds by looking at him and David you pointed out that scene when she raises her eye to him as the mediator of her soul and in encountering her eye he he backs off of the violence and then starts talking about her as the reed in his hand what what you just mm -hmm. read Karen and um and then he says Whatever I do, he's talking about her as a creature, the savage, beautiful creature, uh, the bird imagery. Whatever I do with its cage, I cannot get at it. The savage, beautiful creature. If I tear, if I rend the slight prison, my outrage will only let the captive loose. Conqueror I might be of the house, but the inmate would escape to heaven before I could call myself possessor of its clay dwelling place. And it is you, spirit, with will and energy and virtue and purity that I want. Not alone your brittle frame. Of yourself you could come with soft flight and nestle against my heart if you would. Seized against your will, you will elude the grasp like an essence. You will vanish ere I inhale your fragrance. Oh, come, Jane, come. And this is his final plea to her. And mm. 
And so I think we do have a dangerous man, but a dangerous man who does indeed resist what is in his mind mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and thus begins his own journey to salvation. So we can judge him for that violence that it's in him, but I, I don't think any honest man would say that's never crossed my mind, you know, feminist t-shirt, right? Like, so this is real. It's a real story. It's not following 50 woke rules for writing a story. It's writing what is really in the heart and like the elemental sinful urges that we all have. And, and in resisting them, we begin to become who we were made to be. And that's something that Rochester does here. And so one of the things that I always um, teach in the context of, of, of the rise of the novel, the development of the, especially the British novel, um, is how the way, one central way the novel reflects the modern age is the development and of the individual will, like the choice. And so here we see Rochester having a choice, but also over and over in many of these novels, I mean, what's, what he's talking about here in this passage you just read is he's saying he could violate Jane's body, you know, her the cage of her soul, but that wouldn't get him what he wants because what he wants is her will. He wants her, he wants her to come w- to him willingly. And that's partly why in a lot of these 18th and 19th century novels and earlier, there isn't even, and I don't remember if we talked about this earlier, but there isn't even, a ca- we will talk about it next year when we do tests without giving anything <laughs> away, but there isn't even really a category for rape during this time. Hmm. Because it's just, there. because ra- hmm. a definition of rape centers on the will Hmm. right and whether the will has been violated or not Hmm. and so this these novels are being written during the time when women and everyone else were beginning to have a sense of individual will and conscience and um and agency and so that's kind of what's being wrestled with here um but in in language that you know, we 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 have language today today to describe it in ways that they wouldn't and that's one of the things I'm thinking about, and I don't want to say too much because I'll be writing about it, but is is just how our imaginations, our sort of social imaginary and our moral imagination are created by stories like this and reflected in stories like this in ways that often go beyond language. Like we do have this image of, you know, of men being strong and overpowering women and women giving in or not giving in and all these. And, we, in, you know, we do have words that we used to describe those, but we also have these bigger amorphous kinds of situations where the words don't really fit all of the dynamics that are going on if that makes any sense (laughs) absolutely it does make a lot of sense i find more troubling the bestial language that's used to describe bertha um what the Mm. the wife in the attic i find that far more troubling than what's going on with rochester um the 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 way she is described as a beast and mm-hmm. um an entirely wicked and depraved soul and that is evidence of its time right this this was a time in which people insane people were truly considered like lost to all like it, there was no sense of any kind of humanity and need for care even in the story rochester is portrayed as somehow humane for even keeping her in the attic right Right. 
Right. And so that's which me. which in, yeah. in the times he was right. I exactly. Mean, he, he was actually treating her humanely for the times. Yes, that's exactly right. And so in that sense, in order to really understand Rochester, we 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 do have to allow that because we are being presented with a Rochester who is doing more under the societal conventions than would be expected of him. Although for modern people, including me, this is troubling the way they speak of Bertha. Yeah, the mental health professional in you. Yes, the lack. Yes, the lack. That's exactly right. I just think, oh, this poor woman. I mean, also the human being. She, but. Is, the, right, she is. She is the villain of the story, and we have to understand the story in light of that. But it is more troubling to me the bestial terms that are used to describe her than Rochester in this particular scene. I've never thought about that. You just you said that she's the villain of the story. I don't know if I've ever thought about it that way before. I think she's not necessarily so on active, our on our villains yes, but she yeah on our villains bracket we should have had <laughs> um she was yeah she is she is I mean the malevolent presence the, of the story she is intended to be malevolent not morally the, neutral that causes the yes. problem so that and that would have been a, according to the understanding of their of their time um which of course so we see is Rochester now supposed to be morally neutral? No, I don't think so. But I do think that for those of us, I mean, he's he's a, he's he has agency, right? He's a complicated man, and and she presented him as a complicated man who needs to be saved. But he's not a villain either, and neither is he at this point. I don't think that she's intending to portray him as morally neutral, no, but complex and human. Were you going to say something, Karen? I'm just thinking, I never thinking, thought, of, yeah, I'm thinking about Bertha being a villain. I have to think about that some more. Um, by Let's define some terms here. By villain, yeah. you think that it's kind of like opposing the goals and desires of the protagonist? Like the thing that but, yeah, I mean, I guess I would maybe use antagonist. And in that way, I would also, I would describe Rochester as an antagonist as well. Because if, if for sure here, if yeah. Jane is trying to, you know, to be this, I mean, he presents a temptation and an obstacle to her. Um, and so, um, yeah, it, it, again, sometimes the categories and the terms, you know, they're more complicated than, than our language allows. So that's why I'm thinking about it. There's some really, really interesting Freudian interpretations of this book. I get. Oh, oh yes. <laughs> the, the woman in the attic and the, yeah, right. all, all kinds of and, really and, interesting. And, yeah. uh, and it's some very important feminist criticism yes. of the book too. Yes. Um, and it's what, something I do raise, I think, in one of the discussion questions, this whole um, angel uh, slash whore dichotomy, you know, the, the idea of, and, and Blanche really plays that role, right? So Jane is the more realistic, real person in the middle. But then when we, you know, arrange all of the female characters, um, we would definitely see Blanche in one place and then Bertha in another. And it's just interesting how their names even are somewhat similar mm. um, and yet opposite, you know. Right. Well, and to that point, Karen, I think that this the speech that we've we've already read about um, that Rochester gives on page 522 becomes even more important because I think this is his dawning to Jane as a person, an individual self, a person with a capital P, mm-hmm. not, not a witch or a sprite or an elf mm-hmm. or an angel right. or equals, equals. a savior. This is when he's like, oh my gosh, you're a person and you're leaving me. 
Mm-hmm. You have a choice and you're taking it. And if I force right. you, I'm violating your personhood that you have just right. asserted to me. Right. And I think this is so important, so important for him. I think he would have never had this moment without her leaving. And I think their entire life, he would have seen her as the elf, sprite, angel, savior, that that without this moment of her leaving him, it's so important for him because right. he is not yet what he could be. The last thing he says to her is oh he says jane will give me her love yes nobly generously because then the farewell part is the cry of her heart the last thing she says to him is god keep you from harm and wrong direct you solace you reward you well for your past kindness to me and then she runs off and then it's interesting the how little well so on 498 i think it is he says jane will you hear reason and then she says he kind of he has the look, it says, of a man who is just about to burst an insufferable bond and plunge headlong into a wild license. And then she says, but I was not afraid, not in the least. I felt an inward power, a sense of influence which supported me. So she she is able to resist him partly because she doesn't fear him. So I was thinking, does she not fear him because she knows him and believes a certain thing about him? Or does she not fear him because she suddenly knows herself? I was just noticed, just thinking a lot of how she she is very. I mean, she loves him. She's very conflicted, but she's not afraid of him, despite that lion imagery and so forth. Um, and again, later she stands up to him. Does my does the question that I asked make sense though? Is it is it about what she knows about him, or is it about what she discovers about herself? And does she already know that about herself, or does she discover it about the, herself in the scene? Well, I think. This is what when I whenever I teach this novel and I'm looking for parts that I want to, you know, going looking back, I sometimes have a hard time finding them because because this is a lot, as I said before, this is a process. It's not like there's just a d- discussion, a turning point and then go on. I mean, there's a lot of back and forth both with between the two of them and in Jane's soul and in her will. So it's not just one and done. There's constant um waxing and waning and so in this passage i mean i think it's clear that she says that she was not afraid not in the least because the word isn't there but the next sentence i felt an inward power a sense of influence um i think she is feeling that strength within herself but again it 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 wavers and comes back it's it's not Mm -hmm. it's it's it really replicates the same kind of internal back and forth that we have with ourselves in these intense um emotional dilemmas Right. Well, and regardless of what we may think of Rochester right now as modern people, they are the lightning struck tree. Like they are, they, their roots are entwined. They are two parts of one whole that have been damaged, that have been struck by lightning. So in, in part, I think of this is in her asserting of herself she must leave him. And that is in many ways, her ultimate gift of love to him. And because she does love him more now than she ever has. Um, she's, she is, she's not rejecting him because he's a bad man. She is leaving because the man she loves because he's married. So it is, I think to your question, I think 
they're kind of one in the same thing, right? Like he, she, she does believe in his goodwill towards her. He does, she does believe he's never going to hurt her, even though he might want to, or be tempted to in the moment. And also at the same time, she is learning what it costs to be a woman of virtue. And she is asserting herself and becoming herself. Um, and because they are the lightning struck tree, that's going to have consequences on him. Right. Well, it's almost five o'clock, uh, which means we've been going on almost an hour. So I want to make sure to give you each the opportunity to discuss something, share something, point to a passage that you want to make sure we talk about next time while you're thinking next time we will do 28 through 33. So we'll jump into volume three and discuss those first, you know, four or five chapters. Um, so we have two more episodes left where we're talking about the book as we go. And then the Q and a episode after that, where we'll, I'm sure look at plenty of things, big picture. Um, I guess we'll probably do that at the end of, you know, get a couple of weeks as well. Um, Heidi, what about you? Anything that you want to make sure you point towards? I guess, I guess another way of putting this is Heidi, do you have any final thoughts? I mean, final thoughts. Um, yeah, it's the, the child's motif, the little baby thing that, um, that's such a recurring kind of image within the story that, uh, and she refers, I've noticed this time in reading that she refers to Jane Rochester, like the night before her wedding, um, tomorrow I'm going to be Mrs. Rochester. And she refers to Mrs. Rochester as a creature who has not yet been born, um, that will be birthed tomorrow and come into being tomorrow. And, and then that's on the heels of many dreams of children, which are of course, bad luck, uh, according to the book. Um, and this idea of that Jane and Rochester's love is that the bond between them has created another being in the world. I just find that really interesting. And that that then has various levels of interpretation and meaning. I'd be curious to talk about if, you know, if I were Karen, I would be really curious to bring that to the class and say, what do you make of this image of the child that's being, that, that comes into being that Jane dreams about that Jane thinks she is once she's married. Um, so I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to interpret it. I'm just going to say it's an interesting kind of interpretive um, symbolic uh, idea within this or image within the story. Karen, what about you? Um, I think I'll just um, point to, and I, I, I do mention this in the questions, but it just always strikes me every time I read it. And this is um, in chapter 26 when when the impediment impediment has been mentioned and they're going heading going to head back to the house. Um, at, so 482, because, because Bronte, we've, as we've seen, there's so many rich, long passages, um, but yet she also has this art of like having these brief bits of dialogue or description that just pack such a punch. And so one of those for me is when um, at the bottom of 482, when Mr. Rochester says to the coachman, take it back to the coach house, John, it will not be wanted today. Oh, <laughs> like <Yeah. laughs> the, it's just that there's just all, all of the story is like in that sentence. And then, right, and then right after that, um, at the entrance, Fairfax, Adele, Sophia, and Lee are there to meet her, meet them. And then to the, to the right about every soul cried the master away with your congratulations. Who wants them? Not I, they are 15 years too late. <clears throat> you can just, 
the awkwardness of all those people waiting to congratulate them yeah. in their very British manner. Mind <laughs> of course. You. But nonetheless, you know, yeah, that, that the, the uncomfortable, the uncomfortableness of everything in this, mm-hmm. in this scene, we could talk about each chapter for an hour and still have things to talk about. So easy, um, easily. Yeah. But we'd be doing Jane for an entire year and we, that might <laughs> cause a little bit of people would want to read ahead as we've discovered. <laughs> um, so again, next week we'll do the first several chapters of volume three. Um, and we'll, you know, get into the, there's three volumes, right? Right. Yeah. So that'll be the last so one. So we're, we're into the final act. <laughs> um, what should people look for, Karen? I think they should look for um, some parallels, um, you know, so in character and events, there's more mystery. I mean, we, we've the big biggest mystery has obviously been resolved here, the big one, but there are other mysteries that continue to unfold. Um, and so the story's not done yet. That's why there's another whole volume. Heidi, what about you? What are you looking for? I think that um, I'm so hampered by the fact that I know it happens, so I want to <laughs> just give clues. But um, I'm trying to remember back to the first time I read it, and I remember thinking, why is there a whole other like book-length amount of to read here? Why does this book so, suddenly become yes. a Western? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Thank you. Or an Odyssey, right? Yeah. Um, so I think I would ask myself, especially for first-time readers, what is the point? Mm-hmm. Like, why why keep going after this great assertion of self, this like gaining of virtue, this, you know, it can't, for a book so focused on selfhood, it can't just be about the romance. Right. There has to be something more. And um, so I think I would say, keep your, think think about the next section of the novel in light of that. Well, this was fun. As was always. Fun. Coming to the end of Jane Eyre. Karen, how, how have sales been? Can you tell? Have people been enthusiastic? I mean, you don't literally have to tell me how sales are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They've been yeah, good yeah. for us, so I, I assume you're doing pretty well, but you're still getting lots of conversation about the new edition? Yeah, I mean, I haven't gotten a sales report in a long time, but the um, you know, I, I do check the Amazon numbers. I think everybody, yeah. every writer does. Yeah, you yeah. know, and, and that's been, how they determine your viability as a human being. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> and you know, they've been because it this book was actually uh, it was delayed to Amazon because of the storms in February or yeah. whatever, and so it we got way behind. Even though my publisher had it and you had it, yeah. Um, and so it's been main. It's been it's been steady. I've actually I've been really encouraged. Um, by you know both Frankenstein and, yeah. and Jane Eyre, so yeah, and lots of feedback. So I saw but, somebody that had the book or something like that, and said somebody tweeted something. I think you responded or retweeted or something, and said, "Is this illumination holding a picture of your book? Was it illumination or something <laughs> oh, like that?" It, yeah, they did say that. Um, and then or enlightenment. Enlightenment. Or yeah, is this enlightenment? Uh, yeah, and I was just like, I was like, yeah. <laughs> I don't know what they Jane meant, Eyre, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> sounds right. Well, um, as always, Karen, it's it's great having you on, and. Um, I think we can tentatively say that we would like to do tests next year with you. We've talked about it a little bit and yeah. that's actually a book I have not ever read. Oh, so, um, I'm so excited. Not for any real reason. I just, yeah, it's just never it's, assigned and then it's it never... not the most, yeah, it's, it's a little bit less known. I mean, it's a classic, but not yeah. right up there. So yeah. I'm so, Oh, I'm so excited. Um, so yeah, well, you know, we'll, we'll plan on doing that in, in next year at some point and we'll get us, we'll get a schedule out eventually. For those of you who are, 
going to be reading along with us with the next book that is all the pretty horses cormac mccarthy's book it's a bit different than jane Eyre, and we will we did two no- gothic novels in a row and now it's david and tim's turn <laughs> to pick a man book <sighs> You know that that's a pet peeve of mine right there. I know. Um, but we will do um there's a lot of there's more romance in that book than in this book. Um, that's true. <laughs> it's um, a beautiful, beautiful book. It's it's stunning book. But genre-wise, it's, it's not a gothic far novel. That's true. Yeah, it's different. We, we will have the reading schedule out for that uh post-haste, hopefully by this weekend. Um so you can read ahead if you need to do that. So with that, for Heidi White and for Karen Swallow Pryor, I am David Kern. Thank you so much for listening, and until next time, happy reading. Thank you.